We all know that Australia is a middle power that benefits from the status quo in the region. We want to keep enjoying the best of both worlds. Unconstrained trade with China under the US security umbrella. That situation has served our nation well for more than 25 years. This has been and remains the Canberra policy consensus that anything that disturbs that regional equilibrium is self-evidently not in our national interest. However, the question tonight is, can China really rise peacefully? And, as our keynote speaker says, will it convert its economic might into military might and seek a strategic sphere of influence across Asia on which China's future prosperity and stability depend? John Mearsheimer will be making the argument that we are experiencing an increasingly intense strategic and ideological competition between China and the United States. And indeed, this week's currency and trade disputes, as well as, of course, China's assertiveness in Hong Kong, are just a sign of things to come. The question here is, what should Canberra do? John Mearsheimer is one of America's most distinguished foreign policy intellectuals. He's challenged the conventional wisdom in Washington on various major public policy issues in the post-Cold War era. From NATO expansion in the 1990s, which he predicted would infuriate the Russians and create a security crisis in Ukraine, to the Iraq invasion of 2003, which he predicted would be a strategic disaster fanning strategic Sunni jihadists across the broader Middle East. John Mearsheimer is Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. He's the author of The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. And I think it's fair to say, and this is a widely held view among many foreign policy intellectuals, his book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, which I believe is on sale in the CIS lobby, is along with Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, which was later turned into a book, and Samuel Huntington's The Clash of Civilizations. These are widely regarded as the three most important intellectual theses of the post-Cold War era. And in recent times, just in the last six months, John has published a new book, also available outside for purchase, called The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities. It's a great pleasure to welcome Professor John Mearsheimer. Thank you, Tom. <clears throat> Thank you for the kind introduction, Tom. It's a great pleasure to be here. And I deeply appreciate everybody coming out to hear me tonight. It's always a very humbling experience to know that so many people are interested in what I have to say. Uh, the question on the table tonight is, can China rise peacefully? And <clears throat> before I make the argument that it cannot rise Peacefully. I want to make two preliminary points. First of all, I'm simply assuming that China will continue to rise. There are really two questions involved when you talk about the rise of China. One is, will it continue to rise in an impressive way? And then number two, can it rise peacefully? 
So you just want to understand, I'm assuming that it's going to continue to rise. And then I'm going to address the second question. My second preliminary point is, it's actually a theoretical question. And you have to have a theory to answer it. And the reason it's a theoretical question is because it deals with the future, and we have no facts about the future, because obviously the future hasn't happened yet. So you have to have a simple theory about great power politics. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm very quickly going to lay out my theory of international politics, how the world works at the great power level, number one. Then number two, I'm going to explain American behavior since 1783, American foreign policy since 1783 in uh, synoptic form, just to give you a sense that the United States has behaved according to the dictates of my theory. And then the third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about how China is likely to behave. And not surprisingly, I'm going to argue that China is going to try and imitate the United States. And uh, that's why we're going to have this intense security competition between the United States and China that leaves the real possibility on the table of a possible war. Okay? So let me start with my basic theory of international politics. I think that the ideal situation for any great power is to be a hegemon in its region of the world and to make sure that it has no peer competitor, which is another way of saying to make sure that there is no hegemon in any other area of the world. And as will become clear here as we go along, my basic argument is that there has only been one regional hegemon in world history, and that's the United States of America in the Western Hemisphere. Okay? But the ideal, again, from an American point of view, is to be a hegemon in the Western Hemisphere and make sure that no other country is a hegemon in Europe or Asia or the Persian Gulf, but mainly Europe and Asia. Okay? Now, why do I say that? What's the theory here? In international politics, it's very important to understand that there's no higher authority that you can call on if you get into trouble. In a society like Australia or the United States, if somebody comes after you and tries to cheat you in a business deal or attack you physically, you can call the police, you can call your lawyer. There's a state that sits over that society that you can turn to. In international politics, if you get into trouble, there's no higher authority. And the problem that you face is that you may end up living next to a, a country that has a great deal of military power and it has bad intentions. You might end up living next door to Nazi Germany. Just let's talk about China's intentions or even America's intentions or 10, 15 years down the road. There's no way you can know whether China will have good intentions or whether China will have bad intentions. You don't even know who's going to be in charge in China in 10 or 15 years. You don't even know who's going to be in charge in the United States in 10 or 15 years. So you can't know what their intentions are. So when you have big countries that have a lot of military might and you can't be certain about their intentions, 
And there's no higher authority that you can call on if you get into trouble. There's very powerful incentive to be what we used to call when I was a little boy on New York City playgrounds, the biggest and baddest dude on the block. <laughs> because if you're big and powerful, countries don't fool around with you. How many Americans do you think go to bed at night worrying about Canada or Mexico or Guatemala <laughs> attacking the United States? The answer is zero. Why? Because we are Godzilla in the Western Hemisphere. You understand my point here? You want to be really powerful for purposes of survival. This is a defensive argument. You want to be really powerful because you can never be certain that another state that's more powerful than you or as powerful as you won't come after you at some point. And again, you won't have that higher authority to turn to. So what you want to do is you want to be the hegemon in the system. And my argument is the globe is too big and there's too much water out there for any one country to be a global hegemon. So the name of the game is to be a regional hegemon, to dominate your region of the world, be the most powerful state in your region by far. Okay? And number two, make sure that no other country in places like Europe or Asia dominates its region. So you don't have a peer competitor. That's my basic theory. Now I want to switch gears and I want to talk about the United States of America and I want to tell you a story about the United States of America that most of you don't know. Certainly most Americans don't know this story because we have this idealistic story about noble America that bears little resemblance to reality. <laughs> the United States, and what I'm going to do here is try and convince you that the United States since 1783 in terms of foreign policy has acted according to my theory. That's what I'm going to try and do. 1783, the United States started out as 13 measly colonies strung out along the Atlantic seaboard. What did we do? We marched across the continent to the Pacific Ocean. We murdered huge numbers of Native Americans. We stole their land. We went to war with Mexico in the middle of the 19th century, and we stole from Mexico what is now the southwest of the United States. We invaded Canada in 1812 for the express purpose of making Canada part of the United States. For those of you who don't know, the reason Toronto is not the capital of Canada and Ottawa is the capital of Canada is they expected us to pay a return visit. Furthermore, with regard to the Caribbean, we'd own all the Caribbean now. Places like Cuba and Puerto Rico would be American states if it weren't for the fact that it was inextricably tied up with the issue of slavery. And the northern states said, we're not going into the Caribbean because there are too many slaves down there. Those are slaveholding states, and we don't want any more slaveholding states. We had a voracious appetite for conquest. Adolf Hitler, when he went into the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, sometimes talked about imitating the Americans and their ability to conquer and gain territory. He admired us greatly. He was trying to emulate us. He referred to the Volga, the Volga River as my Mississippi. That's how the United States was created, an expansionist country like we've never seen on the planet before. But that's just the first part of our attempt to create regional hegemony. Second thing we did was the Monroe Doctrine. 
1823, old President James Monroe, he told the Europeans, we're not powerful enough to throw you out now, but there's going to come a day where we're going to run you out of the Western Hemisphere, and once we run you out, you're not welcome back. This is our hemisphere, we run it. No distant great powers are allowed in our hemisphere. It's the Monroe Doctrine. First part of the story I told you is called Manifest Destiny. Marching across the continent from the Atlantic to the Pacific, creating this huge state, importing huge numbers of people, industrializing the country. And then the second part of the story is the Monroe Doctrine, getting the European great powers, the British, the French, the Spanish, all out of the Western Hemisphere. And of course, by 1898, we had done that. We had created regional hegemony. What was our second goal? Our second goal, as I told you, was make sure we didn't have a peer competitor. We did not want any other country on the planet to dominate its region the way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. We had four potential peer competitors in the 20th century. Imperial Germany, Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, and the Soviet Union. We helped contain and defeat all four of them. We helped put all four of them on the scrap heap of history. We entered World War I when it looked like the Germans were going to win in April of 1917 and helped finish them off. With regard to the Japanese, we beat them single-handedly in World War II, and we helped the Soviet Union, which played the key role in defeating Nazi Germany in World War II. And then, of course, the United States played the principal role in containing the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and then we gladly ushered them down the toilet bowl when they fell apart. The United States does not tolerate peer competitors. That's my basic story. Now, let's talk about the Chinese. My argument, as I told you, is that the Chinese are going to imitate the United States. They're going to want to dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. And of course, you understand my argument is that makes perfectly good sense from their point of view. When I'm in Beijing, I always tell the Chinese, if I were playing your hand, I'd try to dominate Asia. I'd try and drive the Americans out. Right? So I don't think they're foolish here. What I'm telling you is they're going to imitate the Americans, and the Americans acted according to my theory, and the Chinese are going to act according to my theory. Why? Because it's the best way to survive in a world where there's no higher authority you could turn to, and you can never be certain about the intentions of other states. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Chinese. My first point is they're going to want to be by far the most powerful country in this region. And they should be. You know what happened when the Chinese were weak? It's called the century of national humiliation. Chinese know what happens when you're weak. Other great powers pick on you. You don't want to be weak in this system. You want to be really powerful. If you're Chinese and you have two choices, one, you can be 20 times more powerful than Japan, or number two, Japan can be 20 times more powerful than you. Which one do you think they'll choose? They won't even think twice. The answer, they want to be 20 times more powerful than Japan. You want to be 20 times more powerful than any other great power in your region and every other great power on the planet if you can. Why? Because it's the best way to survive in a system with no higher authority. So the Chinese are determined to be very powerful. They're feeling really good about the fact that they're growing economically and translating that economic might into military might. And I don't blame them one bit. It's one thing I like about being an American. We are Godzilla. I don't have to worry about the survival of the United States of America. If you're a small country and you live next door to one of those gorillas, you better be really careful. Cuba, they got uppity with us. You remember when Fidel Castro was running the place? We still have not forgiven them. 
Right? You want to be big. You want to be powerful. So that's number one. Number two, as I told you, remember the Monroe Doctrine. You want to get the Americans out of East Asia. Right? You don't want the Americans around. We have the Monroe Doctrine. And as my mother taught me when I was a little boy, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Don't you think they're going to have a Monroe Doctrine? They'll tell you behind closed doors. When we get powerful enough, we're driving the Americans out beyond the first island chain, and then we'll drive them out beyond the second island chain. And again, I don't blame them one bit. If I'm Chinese, that's exactly what I want. I do not want American aircraft and American ships running up and down my coastline. The Americans go ballistic when any foreign country drives military forces into the Western Hemisphere. Some of you are probably old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. You remember how excited we got when we discovered that there were missiles in Cuba. And then the Soviets talked about putting a naval base at Cienfuegos. We told them in no uncertain terms, you ain't building a naval base at Cienfuegos. This is our hemisphere. We've got this thing called the Monroe Doctrine. Stay out. Well, you know, again, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So what I'm telling you here is that the Chinese are going to try to dominate Asia for good strategic reasons. And that includes pushing the Americans out. Then the question you have to ask yourself is what are the Americans going to do? I just told you what the Americans are going to do. We do not tolerate peer competitors. We've got four good examples that shows you how in the past we have reacted. And what you see happening now with the Trump administration is what you're going to see for many years to come. The United States is going to get right in their face and it's going to say, you're not going to dominate Asia. You're not going to become a regional hegemon. It is unacceptable to us. And of course, many of China's neighbors, all you have to do is go to Japan, South Korea, I believe Australia, Taiwan, Singapore, India, right? They do not want to see China become a regional hegemon. So it's not going to just be the Americans. It's going to be the Americans along with a balancing coalition of other countries that are going to try to contain China. And of course, at the same time, the Chinese are going to try to expand. So what you're getting now, and you're going to get much more of, and it's a tragedy here, as Tom told you. The title of my book is The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. This is a tragic situation. I'm not happy about this. In fact, I hope I'm proved wrong. But what we have here is a situation where two guerrillas, the Chinese and the Americans, are going to go head-to-head and in an intense security competition. And there is going to be a serious chance that they end up shooting at each other and that you have a real war between them. I'm not saying that's likely. I'm just saying that is a serious possibility. just want to make one more point about this. There's this concept in international politics called the security dilemma. And the security dilemma is going to make this situation all that much worse. What exactly is the security dilemma? The security dilemma says that anything that one side does for defensive purposes to defend itself is invariably seen by the other side as offensive in nature. 
you know, there's all this talk in the wake of Secretary of State Pompeo being here about putting missiles in places like Australia, Guam, South Korea, and Japan. These are these intermediate-range ballistic missiles and cruise missiles. The Chinese say, Chinese have lots of these missiles, by the way. The Chinese say, our missiles are defensive missiles. Your missiles are offensive missiles. We, of course, think exactly the opposite. Their missiles are offensive weapons, and what we're doing is for defensive purposes. So what happens in this situation is you get this arms race going. And, of course, you can see the arms race happening already. Pivot to Asia, right? You get this arms race going, and the end result is that everything the Chinese do to defend themselves we see as evidence that they're offensively oriented and vice versa. And this just exacerbates the situation. So there's big trouble ahead. Now, let me just say a few words about Australia. As you all know better than I do, this really creates an extremely difficult situation for Australia because it depends so heavily on economic intercourse with China and, of course, at the same time, it depends on the United States for its security. So Australians have a sense that they're sort of caught in between the United States and China. And by the way, if you go to South Korea, you go to Japan, and you go to other countries, Singapore, the Philippines, they all feel the same way. So this is not unique to Australia. So the question is, what is likely to happen in the future? My view on this is that the Australians have no choice but to side with the Americans. This is not to say that Australia will stop all trade with China, uh, because I don't believe that will happen. But I do believe that the Australians will have no choice but down the road to balance quite clearly with the Americans. Because my bottom line, which should be clear from my argument here, is that security concerns always are always trump prosperity or economic concerns. Survival is the highest goal any state can have. Security matters the most. So I think from Australia's point of view, it makes eminently good sense to ally with the United States. And I believe Australia will do that, Japan will do that, and so forth and so on. All of this is not to deny that this is not a happy story. Uh, and again, it's a tragic story in many ways. Let me just conclude with one final comment, and that is to say what you should all really hope for is that China does not continue to grow. Thank you. <laughs> So, John Mishama, just to summarise succinctly, your argument is that um, if China continues to grow strongly economically, then it will convert its economic power into military power and that it will try to kick the Americans out of Asia just as the Americans kicked out the Western powers, the European powers from the Western Hemisphere in the 19th century. Yes. And that America will go to great lengths to ensure that China does not dominate Asia. That's your argument. Are you exaggerating China's strengths? Because there are many Sinologists, such as Professor David Shambar from George Washington University, who was here a few months ago, and they point out that China has some very serious weaknesses and limitations, 
the corruption in the political level, uh, the environmental problems, the air pollution, the water pollution, um, the ethnic tensions, and that's not to mention demography, the, the expression that China will grow old before it grows rich. Are you exaggerating China's strengths here? There's two issues here. One is the question of whether the problems that Tom described will manifest themselves in ways that greatly slow down the growth of the economy uh, and therefore limit greatly its military capabilities over time. Uh, I have no idea whether that will happen or not. I've given the talk that I gave to you folks probably 125 times. This is probably about the 126th time I've given it. Uh, it's hardly changed since I first gave it in 2001, and I've given it in China probably about 25, 30 times, this talk. And one of the principal points that's made against me, uh, including by very smart people inside China, is that the problem I'm describing is never going to happen or occur because China is not going to continue to grow. Mm. And as I said to you folks at the end of my talk, let's hope that's the case, okay? But that's one issue. The other issue, and this is a very important issue to think about, is how much military capability does China have today vis-a-vis -vis the United States. Is the United States sort of on the verge of being a paper tiger today vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese military? I think today that the United States would clobber the Chinese in most conflicts one can imagine, most plausible conflicts. The United States military is a very formidable fighting force and the Chinese military has great limits. It's over time as China continues to grow economically, mm. that the balance shifts against the United States. This is why Deng Xiaoping made a really smart uh, plan, which called for the Chinese just to grow and wait until they got powerful enough to change the balance mm. of power in Europe in their favor. For example, if you're China and you're interested in taking Taiwan back, you do not want to do it now with military force. You want to wait 20 or 30 years, okay? But what this tells you is that it's in America's interest to pick fights with China now to establish the rules of the road. I don't know how many of you remember this from the Cold War. I'm talking mainly about the old dogs in the room because the younger people wouldn't realize this. But in the early part of the Cold War, right, the United States and the Soviet Union had no rules of the road for dealing with each other. We were kind of blind in trying to figure out how to deal with each other. And the same thing is true today with regard to the United States and the China and, and, and the question of how to deal with the South China Sea. It's very hard mm -hmm. to mm. know exactly what to do. And my point, Tom, is it's in our interest to establish those rules now when we are more powerful than the Chinese, whereas it's in China's interest to wait. Yeah, but see, your critics would say you're basing your thesis on great power politics, the tragedy of great power politics on history. We mentioned the 19th century, obviously, with the United States rise as a great power. But haven't we, since the end of World War II, and especially since the end of the Cold War, have a rules-based international order that should keep China in check? How would you respond to those liberals who'd make that argument to you? No, we do have a rules-based order, but the only countries that are required to always obey the rules 
are countries like Australia. <laughs> the United States, first of all, you understand the United States writes the rules. And we obey them when it suits us. And we disobey them when it doesn't suit us. Right? So do you, there's some truth in that as well. But listen, I, I'm not against rules. And, and having an international <laughs> order, I want to be clear on that. The, the reason that the United States created this rule-based order in the West during the Cold War, and the Soviets created a rule-based order in the East during the Cold War, is that to run the modern world, a great power needs institutions and it needs an order. Right? But the point is that those rules are written mm. to benefit the great powers so that they can wage security competition, number one, and number two, if they don't like the rules, they just disobey them. When we did our event on Sunday with the Secretary of State, we also had the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, present, and she made a big deal about how Australia values that rules-based international order. But when I asked her, why doesn't Australia do follow-up freedom of navigation patrols through that 12 nautical mile zone in the South China Sea, she couldn't really answer it. Does that surprise you? No. Uh, I, I, I think uh, that her answer was basically the smart answer, that at this point in time, it does not make sense for Australia to try and enforce the rules, that it would make much more sense for the Australians to pass the buck to the United States mm. and let the United States pay the costs of enforcing those rules. I think there's no question that Australia has an interest in seeing the Chinese obey those rules. But do you want to enforce them? <laughs> no, not in my opinion. I say this from an Australian perspective, not from an American perspective. You have much more, uh, much more of an interest in you know, letting the Americans do the heavy lifting. But John, if we don't want to enforce those rules, doesn't that show that a lot of Australians are right to say we can sit on the sidelines in this intensifying strategic competition between Beijing and Washington? Well, you can sit on the sidelines with regard to this particular issue at this point in time. The question you have to ask yourself is what happens is this security competition that I described intensifies, right? You, you've been able to get away with sitting on the sidelines up to now to playing both mm. sides. And it's been very smart from an Australian point of view. I, I understand what your incentive structure is. The question is what's going to happen as the security competition intensifies. Uh, and, and you have to choose sides. Okay. Now, if indeed that does uh, intensify that strategic competition, and we had a flavour of this during the course of the week in the aftermath of the Osman negotiations on Sunday, if Washington really wanted, say, Darwin to station mid-range missiles, should Australia do it? Uh, you know, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer at this particular point in time. Um, I mean, and we should stress they're conventional, not nuclear. Yeah, right. right. It's, this, this is a very important point to understand. Uh, the, uh, the INF <coughs> treaty that was just thrown in, in the wastebasket uh, prohibited the United States and Russia from deploying intermediate-range missiles that could be either nuclear or conventional. So when the Americans talk about deploying those missiles now or at some point in the future in East Asia, it really matters whether you're talking about nuclear missiles or conventional missiles. Mm. And I'm assuming they're talking about conventional missiles. And I think a good case could be made 
for deploying conventional missiles, right? Where and how many, from an American point of view, is hard to say. And what makes sense from Australia's point of view is just hard to judge at this point in time because we don't know exactly yeah, yeah. Um, what's going on. My guess would be that the Americans will put great pressure on Australia okay. to deploy those yeah. weapons. Now, a couple more questions before we open it up to the audience. Um, you're debating Professor Hugh White in, in Canberra's Hyatt Hotel tomorrow night. It's another CIS event. We're expecting 550 people. Um, his argument, as you know, is that China, and these are facts, China buys double what our next largest customer, Japan, buys from us. The Chinese economy will grow much bigger than America's in coming years. He reckons that Federal Treasury projections show that China's economy will be 80% larger than America's economy in the next 12 to 15 years. He also says that our China ties, and I think this is a fair assessment, saved us from the global financial crisis more than a decade ago. As a result, and this is Hugh White's argument, Canberra would be unwise to support Washington in a confrontation with China that America probably can't win. John Mearsheimer. Well, again, I mean, the, the, the question on the table here is whether or not Australia is going to side with the Americans or it's going to side with the Chinese. I fully understand that from an economic point of view, uh, poisoning relations with China makes no sense. And one could argue it would be disastrous in certain respects for Australia over time. But the question you have to ask yourself is, does that make sense, you know, aligning yourself with China from a security point of view? Can you really imagine Australia aligned with China against the United States? Is that going to happen here? You realize you would be an enemy of the United States then. If the United States is involved in an intense security competition with China and you're with China against the United States, the United States is going to be awfully angry and it's going to go to great lengths to put its gun sights on you. You understand the United States is a ruthless great power. That was the point that I tried to make in my discussion of how America turned itself into a regional hegemon. Uh, so this is a tragic yeah. situation. I would say, however, that I think you, uh, you White, uh, overstates uh, the weakness of America vis-a-vis mm. -vis China. It may be in 40 or 50 years that China fits that description that you lays out, but we're nowhere near that point. And for the foreseeable future, there's no way the Chinese are going to run us off the table or run us out of East Asia. Uh, the United States is a very big and very wealthy country, and it has the most formidable military on the planet. Mm. And, uh, and, of course, this is why you will have such a powerful incentive to ally with the United States. And, of course, you'll have a powerful incentive to do everything you can, everything you can to ameliorate that competition, that security competition between the United States and China. It will be very hard to do because they're both guerrillas. But you have an incentive in doing that so that you can maximize the amount of economic intercourse you have with Australia. Sorry about the light. I hope you can see me, um, but uh, we'll try to rectify that. One final question. What about, I mean, you might be right about uh, China's weaknesses for the foreseeable future and America's strengths. But what about American staying power? Because many pundits believe that the Obama administration had pivoted away from the so-called pivot. And during the Trump era, again, Hugh White, but he's not alone, are saying that America 
is showing sides, signs of not just being war-weary from those wars in the Middle East, but also retreating from Asia. You've got the former uh, Defence Secretary, uh, Bob Gates, who, of course, uh, worked in both the Obama and the Bush administrations, and he says that Washington's polarisation, dysfunction, gridlock, partisanship, uh, that's the biggest threat that America faces. He says, quote, this is Bob Gates, I think the greatest national security threat to this country at this point is the two square miles that encompasses the Capitol building and the White House. Well, there are two issues here. First of all, there's the dysfunction in Washington. It's true. It's almost embarrassing to be an American these days and go abroad and have to defend our body politic. Uh, so, but in terms of staying power, I think it's ridiculous to argue that the United States is showing signs that we're quitting East Asia. If anything, we're up in the ante on Taiwan. We're just in the process of consummating a huge arms deal. We've made it clear we're going to defend Taiwan, right? Pompeo was here and Esper was here for a good reason. The United States is not leaving East Asia, right? And the only problem that we really have, it's not so much what's happening inside the Beltway, uh, this, you know, political dysfunction. The main problem we have is the forever wars in the Middle East. What we got to do is get out of those crazy wars and stop starting new ones in places like Iran and concentrate on China. Uh, that's the main problem. But the fact is the United States is so rich that it can fight the forever wars and still be deeply involved in Asia and be involved in Europe as well, right? And by the way, if we get into trouble, right, financially, we just pull all the forces out of Europe and swing them into East Asia mm -hmm. and pull forces out of the Middle East. But it's not even clear we have to do that because we're so rich. And, uh, and the American economy is not in, in terrible shape these days. So I think the United States has tremendous staying power. I think its policymaking has not been wise for the most part. Tom showed you my book, uh, The Liberal... Um, uh, the Great Delusion, that talks about American foreign policy during the post-Cold War period up to Trump got elected, and it's not a pretty story. And that's why Trump got elected, by the way. So to paraphrase Mark Twain, reports of America's decline or retreat from the region are greatly exaggerated. 